And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Ladies and gentlemen, yes, the light at the end of the tunnel has been switched off. But no worries, have no fear. I am back in the gold press Latin plated Grand Negus throne here in the super secret underground bunker underneath world headquarters. I am back where I belong. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jason Hunt. I'm the editor here at SciFiForMe.com, and. Um, Thank you to Mrs. Boss for filling in yesterday. She did a very, a very good job getting people up to speed about the things you need to know when you're building a website for your convention. I don't know how many, uh, how many conversations we've had about that. Where are the dates? Where are the dates? Anyway. All right. Shout out to everybody who's listening to this as a podcast. Uh, I do want to invite you to join us. For the live video, which is on YouTube and Odyssey. So uh, check that out. Also, we're on the Discord now. Get over on the Discord server and uh, continue the conversation as uh, as things go. All right. All right. All the busy work's out of the way. Let me get this out of here. Because, yes, Snob, snob I have a guest today. I think, I think the show is much more interesting when I have guests. Uh, the, show is, the show is better when it's not just me. So let's do this. We're talking today about the new book, Beasts of 42nd Street, which is uh, coming soon. I believe it's, uh, let's see, February, March 17th, I think is the street date on this. Joining me, the author, Mr. Preston Fossil, who has been a contributor here on the show, on the channel, uh, as part of our trailer park discussion panel. Welcome back, sir. Hey, thank you for having me back. It's been a while since you've been on here. We need to, uh, to not uh, not be strangers so much. So, yeah, I think the last time would have been for my my first book, uh, Our Lady of the Inferno, and this is book number four now. So it's it's been a couple of years. Yeah, you know, I I every now and again I'll look through some stuff and I think, oh, I need to follow up on that. Like, Wait a minute, that show was how many years ago? It's just I keep losing track because I don't I, it's it's just me and I got to keep track of six thousand different things. But you mentioned Our Lady of the Inferno. Uh, there was an announcement about that. What um, in two thousand eighteen that it was getting adapted for a movie. Is is there any movement on this? Because I haven't heard anything since. So the the option rights have since reverted to me. Uh, they took out a five-year option on it, and that has since expired. Uh, those went back to me last July, and I'm now trying to figure out what to do with that. Uh, since that first book came out, I was fortunate enough to get a literary agent, uh, and she's fantastic. I love working with her, but the caveat there is she exists strictly in a literary space right. as opposed to doing film sales yada 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 so i'm currently now trying to get a manager and now finally understanding after years in the industry oh this is what an agent does this is what a manager does and uh trying to find somebody who can 
help me to get Our Lady picked back up and, you know, hopefully also get uh, the rights for Beast's 42nd Street option as well, because I think they're both very cinematic stories and uh, would both make really excellent films. Have you had any conversations about anybody doing a comic book adaptation, possibly graphic novel? There was briefly at one point uh, some discussion with a uh, graphic artist, and that just didn't really go anywhere. Okay, so let me let me ask you this because you're you're looking at you know I'm looking at reviews for the new book, which probably will help with all of this you know because I mean some of this stuff people are saying about you, not just about the book, but about you. Preston Fossil has proven himself as one of our most powerful upcoming voices in horror literature with Beasts of 42nd Street. That, you hear stuff like that. How does, how does that make you feel? I mean, you're in your, your, this is your fourth book. Like you said, you're kind of on a roll. Now you're getting into the groove. You, you kind of know what works and what doesn't, you've got your ideas for things. And then this kind of stuff pops up. I guess that's that's pretty uh, pretty gratifying for you, I would expect. It is. And, you know, I don't want to be, like, narcissistic about it and be like, oh, yeah, finally I'm getting this recognition that I deserve. I'm so great. But then on the other hand, you know, it's, it's also very humbling to, you know, have somebody say that. That, that was Rebecca McKendry. Uh, you know, she's a, a very well-respected scholar who's done a ton of tremendously interesting and influential work uh, involving scholarship on horror media and is an accomplished creator in her own right. So to have somebody with that kind of credentialing behind her say that about me, it's like, wow. Uh, and yet at the same time, I still have imposter syndrome. I still think you're, you're not as good as all that. You're not hot, you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. It's, it's, it's a difficult thing to, to, to navigate, taking praise and like acknowledging people like what I'm doing and are enjoying my work. And at the same time, not feeling uh like i'm a phony yeah well i you know the more the longer i do this i've been in media 34 years now and the the longer i do this and the more conversations i have with people in the creative space you are not alone i think everybody goes through this at some point in their careers and some people go through it almost constantly in their careers and I have to wonder if it's if it's inherent to the creative mind that we're all kind of uh, not necess- not necessarily a little off, but we all have this less than projection upon ourselves because we're we're actually submitting our I mean these are our kids these are our creations and. It's that it's that act of submission to the public where uh, maybe you like it, maybe you don't. Don't hit me, don't beat me. And and that imposter syndrome kicks in for a lot of people just as a natural uh, uh, progression of of events in in creating something. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's just something inherent in the creative personality that we we want to like our own stuff and think that it's good, but then we also don't want to, you know, let that get out of check. We also feel like we're in competition somehow with other creatives and that like the act of creating something is somehow placing us into, uh, I hate saying the same word twice, the same sentence competition with, right. with other creatives when it's not a competition. Uh, yeah. Well, let me ask you this, because this has come up in our Discord server discussions about 
the the difference nowadays, modern modern days versus in the past, where you have a number of these people who are in the creative space, creative space. who are um, taking issue with criti- with critiques or criticism of the work. Well, if you don't if you don't like the work, you don't like me, and it's almost like there's there's too much personal identification between the creator and the created work. Do you do you ever find yourself you know whatever is said about your stuff, good or bad? Do you do you have any challenges separating where they're they're saying this about the book? They're not really saying it about me, or they're saying it about me, and they're not saying it about the work. Can you can you uh, keep that separate relatively easily? Yeah, that's that's something that I was surprised to discover when my first book came out and it got its first couple of negative reviews. That it like it didn't hit me personally. It's a matter of okay, you, you didn't like it. I don't expect everybody to like what I write. Among the people who do like what I write, I don't expect them to think that I'm like the greatest writer ever. Uh, among the people who don't like my work, uh, I it doesn't bother me if they think that this is the worst thing they've ever read, or if I personally am a piece of crap, or if they think that I should never publish again. That's that's their opinion. Uh, I've read plenty of books that I didn't like. Uh, not everything is for everyone, and you know I can acknowledge that. And uh, even if I don't think that what I have written is the greatest horror book ever or one of the greatest books of the year or whatever, I at least know if I'm putting something out into the world, I'm happy with it. It's good for me. And at the end of the day, I can feel confident in knowing that I can stand behind what I put out there. And if somebody doesn't like it, that's, that's their prerogative and I move on. Now, uh, you've got four books out now. Or, or this one's this one's the fourth book about to be released. Yeah. Do you do you find yourself going back to the earlier stuff and thinking, oh, I could I should rewrite that? I do, or do you completely move on, or are you kind of the little George Lucasing in the head there, thinking, oh, you know, okay, I've got the rights back, like Our Lady of Inferno, for example. I've got the film rights back. Now let's tweak it a little bit and let's let's make a change for the for the new edition. Do you ever do you ever have those impulses or is it it's done, it's finished? It, it's done and it's finished. For a split second, when Our Lady the Inferno got picked up by a new publisher and went back into print in a new edition, I was thinking to myself, I've evolved as a writer since it's been several years since I completed this. I've grown in the way that I tell stories and I grow in the way that I write. And maybe there's a couple of turns of phrase here or there that I wouldn't use today, or maybe I could write this sentence more elegantly today, or this, 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 this. But ultimately, I don't want to be one of these people who, one, gets stuck in the past and is constantly going back to the same well, literally, and just, you know, like you said, George Lucasing it. And also, at the same time, I want that to stand on its own. It's something that I wrote at this period in my life. I was happy with it at the time. I should still be happy with it now. Yeah. Uh, plenty of writers, if you follow the course of their career from when they start out and moving on through the course of their career, you can see them changing and growing and trying different things and different pieces of art become artifacts of that time in the creator's life. And that's fine. 
you know, maybe they become a better filmmaker down the road. Maybe they become a different type of filmmaker down the road. Maybe a writer starts out in one genre and shifts genres. Maybe they start out nominally telling first-person stories, and then they get into telling third-person stories. Uh, that's part of being a creator and part of being an artist is this constant change and growth and evolution. And so I'm happy for Our Lady to stand as this is who I was as a writer at this period and Beast is going to be who I am as a writer at this period. And 10, 15 years from now, I may go back and look at Beasts and say, oh, I would have done this differently. I would have done that differently. But I just want it to stand as it is. Now, I notice in the in the listing there from Cemetery Dance Publications, you've got uh, not just yourself, but the artist, the cover artist, Justin Coons, is listed there. And I, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I, I think that we could see possibly a trend beginning. Uh, in the comic books industry, we've started to see here in the last few years an acknowledgement of the inkers, the colorists, the letterers. And now that we've got this, uh, this controversy over AI-generated art, you know, to sit there and for the publisher to sit there and say, hey, here's this book, and we have a cover that's by a real person. You know, as it, and I'm like, that actually could turn into a marketing hook that that our cover was done by a real person, not an AI. Um, but it's a pretty impressive cover. I mean, you see, there's a lot, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot to unpack. But let's tell people about the story because we haven't gotten into that. This one involves uh, quite a bit of deviltry, I guess you could say. So why don't you tell people about it? Excuse me. That's all right. You and I were talking before the show started about the weather here in Dallas, and it's just run roughshod over my allergies. Uh, so uh, this book is uh, set between uh, two time periods, 1965 and 1977 Times Square, and it is the story of a dissolute theater projectionist named Andy Liu, who, when we first meet him in 1977, has spent the last 12 years obsessed with a mysterious film reel that he came into possession of back in the 1960s. And Andy's fixation on this film reel and specifically identifying the woman at stars has slowly eroded both his mind and, to a certain extent, his soul. And uh, as the book progresses, Andy finds himself delving deeper and deeper into the 1970s Times Square underworld in an effort to identify the woman in this movie, while at the same time... <clears throat> dealing with a corrupt New York police detective who has gotten him under his thumb and the war that that detective has gotten involved with with another New York cop trying to root out corruption in the force and how Andy ultimately becomes a pawn between them and various other underworld figures. Uh, I, I wanted to kind of blend a, a neo-noir story with a horror story. Uh, I think that uh, Angel Hearts with uh, Mickey Rourke and, Robert, and uh, Robert De Niro is a really fantastic film. Yeah. And you don't often see noir or neo-noir elements really wedded well to a horror narrative and so i thought it would be cool to do something that was kind of taking the maltese falcon and then crossing it with hellraiser uh what if all of these guys you know humphrey bogart peter laurie running are running around not looking for this beautiful prized artifact but something infernal yeah. Well, and, and you mentioned the time period that that uh, that has me thinking 
it's got to be one of those things because you talk about going going back to Our Lady of the Inferno and a turn of phrase here and and a way of saying something there. I think one of the things that uh, comes up in conversation a lot in these in these discussions of uh, the traditional publishing and the modern the modern creative space. There's a lot of back and forth about uh, word usage and lang- modern language in something that is not a modern time period, and it kind of takes people out of the story. And with you having part of this set in the 70s, you know, there's there's a certain way that people talked in the 70s that we don't now. And and New York Times Square was a a, a wildly different place than than it is now. How much research, homework did you have to do to get that voice, to get that tone accurate? Because I've seen people talking about, well, you can tell this author, you can tell this writer is not from New York because they're calling it Avenue of the Americas. And nobody in, nobody in New York calls it that. You know, those kind of these, those, those little esoteric things that you know if you're from there, but nobody else does. How much research did you have to do for that to just get it right? I put a tremendous amount of research and sort of a big part of the process of writing anything that I work on is the research process because I want somebody to be able to pick this up, read it, and if they lived in New York in the 1970s, I want them to believe that this actually happened or that this could have actually happened. I want that complete verisimilitude. Uh, for the research process for Bisa 42nd Street, a big part of it was talking to two different uh, individuals. Uh, one is named Ron Rochia. And uh, for people who are uh, trailer compilation fans or who are fans of uh, 19, early, <clears throat> early 1990s, late 1980s uh, kind of underground horror, uh, Ron Rochia is the Ron who lent his name to Mad Ron's Previews from Hell which was one of the early VHS uh, trailer compilations of uh, horror movie trailers. Uh, Ron lived uh, and worked as a uh, theater projectionist in the 1970s and would make frequent trips from Lansdowne, Pennsylvania, up to 42nd Street, not just to do work at Grindhouse Theaters there, but also to compile trailers. And uh, there was a point where uh, Ron owned the largest collection of horror and exploitation movie trailers in the United States. And uh, he and I met when I did a story on Mad Rounds Previews from Hell for Fangoria a couple of years ago, uh, became friends, stayed in touch. And so I was able to send Ron chapters of the book and have him sort of vet it as somebody who was there at the time, right? Uh, who actually went to the places that I'm describing. Uh, the other person is a guy named Jason Alvino, who also was a is still to this day a uh, New York native and resident uh, of New York City, and who was a uh, younger man at the time than Ron was, but who still experienced a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about in this book. And so between these two people who actually lived where I'm describing and lived through some of the stuff I'm describing, they were able to help me make sure, okay, it would be phrased this way, uh, they wouldn't call it this, yada, yada, yada. Right. And then another valuable resource for me was a website called citydata.com. This is a really cool thing. You can go there. It's a message board, and you can just ask people about life in their cities. Uh, so I went to the the New York City City Data and said, uh, hey, I'm working on this book about 1970s New York, and if you lived uh, specifically in Manhattan 
between 65 and 77, I would like to talk to you and was able to interview a couple of people and run stuff by them. And unfortunately, uh, with COVID and the years of time between the writing of the book and the publication of the book, I got locked out of my account on city data. I wasn't able to personally credit anybody. I think in the acknowledgement section, now it just says like the users of citydata.com. But like, yeah. I got to talk to this guy. Uh, the book is leading up to the events of the 1977 New York blackouts. And I got to talk to this guy and his uh, older brother, who actually experienced the blackout and actually ended up having to walk home during it. I got to talk to a couple of other people who were there during the blackouts, and it was just really great to be able to get these firsthand accounts of information. And uh, between those three resources, that was a uh, tremendous amount of data to put into the book to make sure that I had all of my T's crossed, all of my I's dotted, that I wasn't going to use any kind of slang or turns of phrase uh, or a terminology that was inaccurate to these characters. The world that they would have grown up in and the world that they were, would have been living in circa 65 77 now was part of that also do, do you ever go back and say okay i'm i'm doing a i'm doing a story that's set in this time period do you ever go back and look at films that were made set in that time period thing you know stuff like serpico and 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 french connection and and that kind of thing to get a, a little bit of the rhythm of of how people talk and and what they do and and that kind of thing does that also factor into this oh definitely right before i sat down to start work on this i watched taxi driver i watched uh, andy milligan's flesh pot on 42nd street uh martin scorsese's mean streets uh i did a little battery course of movies uh set in this time period to you know what, what would the world have looked like to these people and what would the world have sounded like uh and also just to get the the ambiance uh taxi driver tonally was a major influence on this as a matter of fact when i, I was pitching it uh my comp was taxi driver meets hellraiser <laughs> you know i gotta i gotta think anybody listening to that pitch would go okay Sure, <laughs> but but then it's is it Hellraiser the movies with Pinhead or is it Hellraiser the Vertigo comics with uh, John Constantine? I mean, you could go either way with that, and that would be a completely different kind of film. Although, not really now that I think about it, because you got demons in both places. Now you gotta you gotta uh, uh, in your reviews here, Mick Garris is saying a faithful yet imaginative transcription of one of the darkest times and places in our country's history. Hedonistic, pharmaceutically inflamed, devastated by disease, Fossil captures it all in its inglorious glory. Right? That's that's some that's some strong praise because getting it right that's that's the key thing I think for me as a writer too. When I sit there and okay, I've got to make sure this sounds like it belongs. You know, uh, one of one of my gripes of uh, uh, the first season of Picard was Raffi said pro tip and when she's talking to Picard she says pro tip and I was like no 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 you're the 24th century you're not talking to the, you're not saying stuff like that you know and and I think you've got it you have to get that stuff right you know it's really important to 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 make sure that your characters fit not only the, the story that you're trying to tell from you know story logic and and that kind of thing but it has to fit the setting that you're putting them in and I don't I don't know. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the writers that are actually getting work maybe don't understand that. 
Yeah, the, the voice is very important for me, and authenticity of voice is very important for me. And uh, my my wife jokes that I have um, we weaponized my my autism in this regard because uh, the big parts of learning how to socialize uh, and uh, interact with people and pass, for lack of a better word, was studying how to regular, you know, in my mind as a you know young person, regular people speak and sound and interact with one another. And I discovered that I could pass through mimicry, uh, watching how other people speak, watching how other people interact, and then mimicking that. And uh, I, over time, developed a very good skill for mimicry in my writing because I was paying so very much attention to the way people spoke, paying so very much attention to speech patterns and rhythms and accents and uh, intonations and the way that voices change depending on mood and interaction and setting and the way that maybe regional variations impact these things as well. And I have carried over that mimicry into my writing so that when I'm writing a character, I am hearing a, vo a specific voice in my head that I'm replicating on the page. Now, are you hearing voices from particular actors or just people that you've encountered in your day-to-day -day life? Where, where do those voices come from for you? Uh, it varies. Uh, sometimes it's a voice that I have crafted in my head that I've kind of workshopped out myself and like, you know, done it out loud for myself and developed it. And then in other cases, I am specifically modeling the voice on an, on an actor a lot of times. A lot of times I will mentally cast my characters and then write them as though they're being played by this person. So, for example, in the book, uh, one of the antagonists, the corrupt cop, Gator, is, is Matthew McConaughey. If you read the book, hear Gator's voice is Matthew McConaughey's voice, and you will you will see it. Uh, and then uh, the character of Nikki was uh, Lance Henriksen, circa Aliens. Uh, and then the uh, character of a uh, Dick Valentine, I actually based on an actor that I got to meet uh, through some of the independent film work I did here in Texas, named Skeeta Jenkins. And just such a really sweet guy, really cool guy, and it was like I'm going to this guy in my book essentially and so that character is him uh andy my protagonist uh he started life as a character in these short stories that i would write for my college's literary magazine and he was this kind of minor squirrely villain in those stories he was never the focus of any of them he was always this kind of side antagonist and i would read these stories out loud and so i developed a voice for andy and this this kind of nasally gutter snipe, like just off-putting. You wouldn't want to interact with somebody who sounds like this voice. Uh, my my sinuses are too clogged right now to do it right and do it justice. And I also haven't done that voice out loud in several years. But it, that's it the voice that I do. It reminds me I'm a sorry? little bit. It reminds me a little bit of Squiggy from from Laverne and Shirley, only an evil version of Squiggy. He, he started life as my best attempt to do Bruce Dern by way of Louis Anderson. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and for, for the closest approximation to what I think it should sound like, Bruce Dern and the Great Gatsby. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. It would be Andy. All right. 
Okay, now you earlier you mentioned writing for Fangoria. You talked about writing in in the the magazines in in your earlier days. I want to circle back to that right after the break. I want to talk about that because I got a couple of questions on that. We will continue with Preston Fossil right after this. Don't go anywhere, anyone. From out of the cold Stygian mists of midnight, this is Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Do you ever wonder what scares people from India, Indonesia, or Italy? Well, we're going to find out this season on Foreign Bodies, where we'll be exploring these parts of the world. Plus, we may revisit a few places that we've been before. Join us for more horrors around the world. Foreign Bodies, Saturdays, 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 Central, on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Good morning, Multiverse. Saturday morning at 11, 10 Central, only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. We have survived three days now since Junior Office Dog made her attempt on my life. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. We are live from the bunker. We are talking with uh, author Preston Fossil. He is uh, the author of the book Beasts of 42nd Street. It is his fourth novel coming out here in a couple of weeks. Uh, but he has also contributed to Fangoria Magazine and other other publications. Let me ask you, how much difference is there, or is, is there a difference, between writing the shorter stuff, the focused, you know, where, where I'm covering a particular topic, and doing something fiction narrative, uh, a longer work? Do, does your process change at all between one or the other? Oh, yeah, they're two completely different parts of my brain. Uh, nonfiction is often much easier for me to write. Uh, I can write it in public. I can write it with other people around me. I can have somebody else in the room. Uh, and I can usually knock it out in one go. Uh, my fiction writing is a much more fraught process. Uh, I have to be alone. I have to have complete privacy. I have to be isolated. I need some kind of white noise blotting everything out. Uh, and I just need to have that focus. And I can sit down and knock out a 1,500-word article, go back, edit it, be happy with it, and submit it in one go. For a fiction book, I can really struggle. And on great nights, I can sit down and knock out 2,000 words in a single sitting for a fiction book. And then other nights, I can sit there for an hour and struggle and tinker and think and end up with like 300 words. Uh, I've also discovered I do my best nonfiction writing early and my best fiction writing late and trying to do one or the other in the opposite time slot, so to speak, uh, is often disastrous. Uh, right now, I'm currently at work on two books. Uh, one of them is a uh, nonfiction book that's already been sold to an imprint to Simon & Schuster. The other one is a fiction book that I have uh, pitched my agent that she's intrigued by, that she's given me the green light to work on. And so what my routine has been these days is I get up and from nine to noon, I do my nonfiction work on the nonfiction book. And then in the evenings from 730 to nine, do my fiction writing. Now, have you are you continuing to contribute to Fangoria at this point? Because I know you were doing that for a while. Are you still are you still over there uh, in any capacity? 
No, when the magazine got sold a couple of years ago, they decided to uh, axe some of the columns and sort to start from scratch. And unfortunately, my column was a casualty of the casualty of the sale. Gotcha. Uh, but in in a way, I'm kind of grateful because that gave me the push to go back to my fiction writing and go back to some other stuff that I had wanted to work on. Yeah. And I think that if I had had this column in Fangoria, that I could have gotten complacent with it. And it could have been like, I'm the guy with the column in Fangoria. And, you know, that's me. And by not having that, it kind of pushed me out of the bird's nest. And it was in the aftermath of that uh, column, Getting Axed, that, uh, you know, I published The Despicable Fantasies of Quentin Surgeon off my second novella. Uh, and it was uh, that happening that pushed me to uh, get to work on the Bill Landis project. Landis, the story of a real man on 42nd Street, the biography I wrote of magazine founder Bill Landis, uh, that's been incredibly successful. And so by not having those laurels to rest on, it really made me uh, pump up my game and and really get back to work and get out there and start producing stuff. Do you have a preference at this point do the, between the, the fiction and the nonfiction? I mean, with the process being completely different, do, does one feel better for you than the other? No, I just I just enjoy writing. I just enjoy the act of writing. The act of writing satisfies something intellectually and emotionally and spiritually in me. And my fiction and my nonfiction accomplish different things. Uh, my nonfiction informs. My fiction entertains. And uh, you know, those are both equally satisfying. Uh, for the longest time, I would have said fiction. Uh, and nonfiction always seems to me to be you know drier and colder. Uh, and more, for lack of a better word, mercenary. But uh, having done more nonfiction writing over the past uh, couple of years, the the Bill Landis book especially has made me embrace that side of myself more and uh, be happier with myself as a nonfiction and fiction writer. And I'm now equally happy to be known for doing both. Well, now you mentioned you mentioned your uh, your wife earlier, <clears throat> and I see the menorah on the shelf uh, in in the background there. Does does any of your regular life filter into your creative process, e either on the fiction or the nonfiction side? How much does that, you know, we're talking about having having voices for the ver various different characters, and some of them are people you know, some of them are actors, but it, it, different aspects of of your regular day to day routine. How much of that has any kind of impact on? how you approach the writing craft um tremendous amounts uh reading anything i've written you're going to get a piece of me in that uh i put a large amount of myself into anything that i've worked on uh our lady the inferno uh there's a, there's a lot of me in that and uh, a lot of my heroine's backstory and my heroine's personality in there is called from my life um, but this book especially, uh, Andy Liu kind of began life as my shadow self. Uh, I first came up with the character I mentioned earlier in college. And at the time, uh, my family had just moved to Texas. I had just uh, enrolled in college. Uh, I was working at a movie theater. I was going to school. And my mother had uh, recently been diagnosed with leukemia and was in a isolation wing at uh, MD Anderson Hospital in Houston. And my dad was working extra hours in order to uh, you know, make as much money as he could. My brother had recently moved out of the house. 
Uh, I'd recently had a uh, sad but mutual breakup with a girlfriend. Uh, we really got along. We really liked one another. We, in a way, I feel we both loved one another, but uh, we, we just weren't right for each other. Yeah. And uh, it was a situation where we were at least mature enough, even as early 20-somethings, to be able to sit down and say, if we stay together down the road, neither of us are going to be happy. Yeah. And uh, that was a very hard thing to do, uh, but it was something that was necessary. And uh, it, I found myself at this point where I really didn't have anybody. You know, my, my mom's in the hospital. I barely see my dad. My brother's gone. My girlfriend's gone. I've just started going to this college, uh, especially when I was younger. Even into my early 20s, I had a very difficult time making friends and meeting new people and socializing. Uh, and my life was essentially, you know, get up, depending on the day of week, go to college, go to work, or, you know, spend an entire day in relative isolation. And uh, I was working as a theater projectionist at the time. Uh, I was one of this this last generation of uh, people actually trained to, to spool reels of film and to uh, not edit, uh, splice. Just splice them together. Yeah. And uh, I, I was getting kind of spooky. Uh, I was going back to Taxi Driver. I had taken, you know, those those cardboard theater standees. They were going to be throwing one out. And I hauled it up to the projection booth and turned it into an exercise mat. And I was really doing the, like, 50 push-ups, 50 pull-ups. I probably weighed about 160 pounds. And in my brother's words, was getting a creepy jacked. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I had lost all my color. I was, the, I, my complexion had looked like a piece of printer paper. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I was just feeling very isolated and cut off. And uh, something that I discovered was serving as this thing to isolate me from other people was you know, I was really into horror movies. I was really into exploitation movies. My, uh, was my bookshelf here on the other side you can't see is my movie shelf. And at the time, essentially my entire movie shelf was horror and exploitation with some uh, European art house and Japanese movies uh kicked in for good measure yeah. and that, that was a big thing with my girlfriend that was something that really bothered her uh like <laughs> it was really upsetting to her some of the stuff that i liked and you know she said well yeah. how can you like that and she thought that that maybe spoke to a deeper flaw in my character that like i was entertained by stuff like this and i would tell people at college you know i'm really into horror movies and it's that kind of pullback moment right and I just remember this one night getting home and I'm just covered in filth from helping the ushers haul stuff down to the dumpster at the end of the night. And it's like, you know, two o'clock in the morning, um, still in my Cinemark uniform. And I come home and I'm alone. Dad's already gone to bed. Mom's in the hospital. And I feed the dogs and I go into the room where we have the computer and I just flunk down into this uh, desk chair and I'm looking at all these horror movies on the shelf and thinking about how cut off I am from people. And I just think to myself, where the hell are you going to be in another 30 years? And that was the moment that Andy Lee was born. And this was sort of my worst case scenario for myself. I see, uh, a, I see a description here. Uh, this is uh, Valkyrie Lovecrew, author of Crom Crouch saying Andy Lou is the most compelling protagonist in years a walking contradiction of self-hatred and emptiness contrasted against a burning passion 
So compelling, a certain kind of reader may find a perverse kind of kinship with him if they're not careful. Yeah, you know, we we talk, we hear a lot about the self-insert uh, character. You know, the writer puts himself into the thing, and you know, there are a number of comic book writers who have been criticized for doing that uh, recently, especially. But it, it, is there a is there a danger of putting you, too much of yourself into these stories? Have you ever kind of worried and was like, well, maybe maybe that's too much. I need to dial it back a little bit. I'm, I'm always very mindful of that. And that, that's how Andy Lou started. That's definitely not how Andy Lou ended. Uh, that was the seed for the Andy Lou character. But if you read this book, you are not going to get any kind of like secret revelations into my life. There are no real one-to-one parallels uh, between my life and Andy's beyond the fact that he has a brother and I have a brother. But I mean, you know, Lots of people have brothers, but uh, yeah, I, I just used that as a kind of spiritual seed for Andy and then moved on from there. Andy uh, is, is definitely not me. We haven't even touched on the demonic elements of this yet, because there are demonic elements in this story. Because yeah, I, I was reading a, a description of this thing, we're like, hang on, who made this movie that Andy's got his hands on? Uh, and and that puts a a, a different wrinkle on uh, who the you know, because the beasts of Forty Second Street are specifically that kind of thing. I mean, there are there are demonic forces at work here. How did how did that factor into? Oh, I'm I'm going to tell this I'm going to tell this story set in the '70s in New York, but I'm going to add demons. <laughs> So there were all of these weird rumors. This is one of these like shibboleths that people who were around at the time are going to get. Back in the 70s, there were all these weird rumors about movies floating around the city supposedly made by the devil. And this was wow. this this like urban legend on Times Square in the 70s that uh, particular very heinous horror and exploitation movies were actually made by the devil or demonic forces. And one of the things contributing to this was in the exploitation film scene at the time, so many people were using pseudonyms, uh, either because they had day jobs or because they had been blacklisted from one corner of the industry or because they just didn't want their family to know that they were doing stuff like this and they didn't want their family to accidentally see their name on a movie poster. And so you can find movies from the 1970s that are a product of the Times Square exploitation scene where virtually every single name in the credits is fake. And there's one particular, there's one movie in particular, uh, it's got a lot of titles because all these movies had like two dozen titles, Uh, it was uh, called The Cuckoo Clocks of Hell, The Last House on Dead End Street, and uh, for years and years, people would insist that this movie had been made by Satan. Uh, It's uh, the director, the credited director is Victor Llanos, which of course is a pseudonym. Right. Everybody in the movie used pseudonyms. And it's a really grimy, really nasty movie. Uh, It is kind of the Serbian film of its day. Mm. And because of the tonal ugliness of it and the violent content and the fact that nobody could figure out who worked on this, People really thought, or at least this, they propagated the urban legend that Last House on Dead End Street was made by the devil, and Victor Janos is the devil. And so I thought it would be cool to take these urban legends and look at, well, what if they were real? What if there was at least one film floating around 42nd Street 
in the 70s that actually did come from diabolical powers. And it's not quite the devil, because I didn't want to just do the devil. I always like doing something different. And so it's not quite the devil, but it is definitely a figure who is of diabolical origin. Mm. Now, did the urban legends come first in terms of deciding what kind of story you wanted to write next? Or did you have the 70s New York first and then you came across the, the urban legends in your research? What, what, which, which was the chicken? Which was the egg? 70s New York was first. Uh, I kind of concurrently learned about these rumors while just learning about 70s 42nd Street in the first place. Uh, the thing that made me fall in love with uh, 42nd Street as a setting for my books was reading Bill Landis and Michelle Clifford's Sleazoid Express, uh, which was a uh, began life as a magazine in the 1980s and then uh, was revived in the early 2000s in conjunction with a book put out, put out by... Simon and Schuster, and uh, the Simon and Schuster book is the first thing that I ran across, which is what opened my eyes to the Deuce, Forty Second Street, nineteen seventies New York Times Square, yada yada yada. And Bill talks about those rumors in the book. And so, as I was learning about seventies New York in the first place, I was also learning about these urban legends. And my very first Forty Second Street story, Our Lady of the Inferno, I wanted to be a completely grounded, real world story. It's a it's a, it's a serial killer story. And to follow that up, I wanted to do something a little more overtly horror-y and supernatural. And in conceptualizing that, I thought, well, it would be great. Here's the time to pull out these rumors and make them true and actually drop this demonic figure floating around 1960s and 70s New York. Now, that that raises the question, because if you keep going back to 42nd Street, is that going to be... Uh, your uh, your uh, Arkham, your because you, know, you know Stephen King is always telling stories in Maine. You had Lovecraft up there around Arkham and and that that set of that set of towns around the Miskatonic University. Are you are you going to f uh, focus on a particular region of the country and that's where most of your stories are going to get uh, told in the in the fossil verse? At least so far, the realm of exploitation cinema, because yeah. the work in progress I have going now is a very wide ranging story. Uh, it is about an exploitation film, and that's going to take the reader to Texas, uh, California, New York, Russia. Uh, but uh, the next thing I'm working on is a more of a panopticon of the exploitation film industry. And I really think that uh, exploitation movies and horror movies and our relationship with that sort of media is my Arkham. What do you attribute to the last the last couple of two, three years, we've seen a resurgence in horror films and interest in horror films and success of horror films? Or you look at Cocaine Bear over the weekend, uh, pulling in as much money as it did. Uh, People thought it would do okay. It did better than expected, which I think maybe surprised some people. What do you What do you think is uh, fueling that renewed interest in horror? Is it the fact that we're in the you know the state of affairs that we're in in the world, or is it some is there something deeper now? Uh, that's a big part of it. So you look at some of the biggest boom periods for horror. 
and they are the times that the country is in its most dire straits. The Universal Monsters come out of the Great Depression. Uh, the 1930s spawned some of the most incredible horror cinema of that time and laid the foundations for what horror movies were going to be for generations while the country was completely falling apart. And then an era that still to this day is remembered for some of the greatest horror cinema ever made, the 1970s. Uh, and you know, another terrible, terrible period in American history, that whole post-Watergate recession, gas crisis, talent of Vietnam era, gave us the Exorcist, gave us the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, gave us incredible horror cinema. And now we've got COVID, and now we're seeing these really great pieces of horror media coming out of it. Uh, I, I feel like a big contributing factor, too, is that over the past couple of years, uh, creators are telling stories that have a message, but where the message isn't worn so boldly on its sleeve. Yeah. Uh, I thought that Megan was an incredible example of how to do that. Uh, you know, horror has always carried some kind of social message, but there was this period there for a while where it was almost too much like an episode of Designing Women where, you know, Julia Sugarbaker at the end of the episode would turn to the camera and deliver uh, what I think Linda Bloodworth Thomas is the one who came up with the phrase Terminator rants yeah. and would just like lay out the whole point of what the episode was trying to convey. And it seemed for a while that horror movies were more or less doing that. And I feel like there was some audience exhaustion with that. But now something like Megan, Megan is a really great movie about the perils of technology, especially as regards to how it's begun to almost raise our kids for us. Yeah. And it's kind of looking at the dangerous, logical extension of that. And the movie never like takes a hammer out and whacks you and says, you shouldn't let technology raise your kids. Parents should take a more active role in their children's lives. Uh, screen time regulation is important. It's there in the story and it's there for the viewer to get yeah. and more and more films have begun to do that us us is fantastic about that us is a really scary really well written made movie about exploitation of the third world but at no point does uh you know anybody in that movie ever explicitly even reference the third world yeah. uh and i feel like people have wanted that in their horror they've wanted that old school John Carpenter style woven into the fabric social commentary. Now they're getting it again and it's amazing. And there's new voices coming out and it's exciting and cool and new. I think uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that in, in the horror space, but I've, I've seen, you know, you go back to, you know, 2014, 2015 uh, with the Hugo awards. And there was, a, there's been a lot of criticism in the literary world and traditional publishing and in comic books and in video games, your, your, your message is, is, is louder than your story. You're not entertaining me. You're lecturing me. You're preaching at me. You're trying to propagandize me. And, and the people that are in the creative space in those, in those worlds are sitting there. Well, if you don't, if you don't like it, don't buy it. And, well, make a better product and I'll buy it. And and if, you know, for the longest time you have, you know, things like Star Trek, for example, uh, where they, they do tackle social issues and they do tackle, you know, things what we need to be talking about and issues to be addressed. But it's not overtly political one party or the other or you must do this. You must think this way. You have to you have to believe this and that and the other. And, you know, maybe maybe. I hate to even think that that maybe we're past that point, you know, we're over the hump that we're getting back to, 
stories that entertain and if you if you have something in the subtext and if you get something out of it message wise that's on you that's fine but i'm still going to tell a story that entertains first that has to be the goal and and it sounds like you know you're you're it sounds like the horror space is getting this but maybe maybe we've turned a corner on some of that do you think I mean, and I I don't even care if it is like this, like completely one sided thing. I just want it to be in a good story. They Live is a giant cinematic Uh. to Ronald Reagan and to (laughs) 1980s era Republicans. And there is no like, uh, like equal measure in there. That is John Carpenter and Rowdy Roddy Piper raising two very big middle fingers to the Reagan administration. But it's a damn good movie and Mm -hmm. it's fun and it's entertaining and it is a engaging narrative. Yeah. And for the longest time that they had kind of stopped and uh, it is, it is a return to story carrying a message. Think, a story has to be the basket in which the message is carried. I think it's interesting too, that that particular film <clears throat> has, has gotten to be, you know, the general meme of the day for, you know, the last two or three years you know, we get all this, you know, trust in science, trust the science, you know, believe that and don't, you know, uh, this. H- hang on. Let me ask a question. What do you mean I'm not allowed to ask a question? And and this, you know, Roddy Piper putting on the glasses shows up everywhere on the Internet. Um, it's it's interesting that the 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 general cultural zeitgeist latches on to these moments in cinema or in you know in comics and it says this this speaks to me but not necessarily in a good way we need to do better you know and, and it's it's interesting to see when when people start using those things to make their arguments i think it's i think it's fun it's the same thing that happened with fight club uh yeah. you know the people that chuck polinick is satirizing in fight club are the people who now unironically love that media the most right. uh yeah. You do see this phenomenon where, like, the people who are, like, kind of being satirized or who are being made the target of something with a piece of art don't get that and then, like, unironically embrace it as, like, their their battle flag. Yeah, I think it's I think it's also kind of one of those things where, you know, we start to see uh, uh, groups of groups of people who have been so anti-corporation for so many years you know, circling the wagons around someplace like Disney, for example, because of the whole stuff that was going on in Florida. And and I'm like, the, the, the irony is lost on some people because Disney's still a big corporation. They're still, you know, doing whatever it is they're, they're going to do. But now, you know, the, the priorities have shifted because why? You know, it, it doesn't make any sense to me sometimes. But it, that's it. I think that cycles through. And I think sometimes we'll see, you know, we'll see some of that get reflected in the stories that get told. But it, it, I, I'm, I'm with you. As long as the story entertains, you want to bury a message in there, that's fine. But entertain me, you know, give me an hour and a half or give me 400 pages where I can just not, nothing outside. I'm just here. I'm going to get immersed in the story. I'm going to escape for a little bit. That that's, that's what I want out of a, out of a story. And that's important to me because I mean, everything I've written has is about something and has something to say. Uh, 
you know, Despicable Fantasies of Quentin Surgenoff was a anti-homophobia rant. Uh, Our Lady of the Inferno was this uh, exploration of uh, changing gender roles and the uh, role of women in the 1980s and this exploration of motherhood and what it means to be a good versus negative maternal figure. Uh, Beast of 42nd Street is about toxic fan culture. Uh, when I was writing this, it was kind of at the fever pitch of the... Uh, uh, Last Jedi uh, <laughs> controversy, and yeah. just watching these people just treat everybody involved in that movie online, as, you know, so terribly, and like acting as though they had ownership of this piece of media. Uh, and then a big part of it too came about because that was also a period in my life where I was going to a lot of revival screenings. Uh, the Texas Theater here in Dallas showed a lot of great thirty-five millimeter uh, revivals of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Alejandro Hodorowsky, Santa Sangre. And you go to these, and you've got these these this one streak of hipster goes to these revival screenings to treat the movie like MST3K. And I'm sitting there watching The Passion of Joan of Arc, and here's this girl, you know, on trial for her life, and it's the ultra-close zoom up on her face. And there's people laughing and, like, yeah. cracking jokes about it. And I stopped going to revival screenings because of this streak. And there's these two ends of the horseshoe in terms of asshole fans of media, the ones who either can't take anything seriously mm -hmm. and everything is ironic to them, or they feel like they absolutely own a piece of media simply because they watched it, consumed it, and loved it. And then they're going to destroy anybody else who in their mind comes between them and this thing they feel like they own. And well, I'm now, inner sick. Now, to be fair, the people defending the last jedi were just as bad i mean the, I didn't the, see that. the behavior the behavior on both sides got got fairly ugly it's it's not it's not just you know one or the other or this i mean you had various different factions and it's not just not just the last jedi i mean you look at reactions to doctor who and and star trek picard and star trek discovery and all of these, all of these different pieces of, of genre media, DC Comics, Marvel Comics, and the the criticisms on the one side and the defenses on the other, it it's the last three or four or five years has been ugly all the way around. I think. With, with the, the Last Jedi, I personally did not see any of that. Uh, just in my Twitter viewing and doom scrolling. Uh, I saw the the ownership fans. Uh, the same with Rick and Morty, the people who didn't want women writing for the show because it's a guy show mm -hmm. and, you know, driving people off of Reddit threads. Uh, that's That was my influence. That's what I primarily saw, and that's what I'm looking at with this. So uh, you've, got, you've got two projects that are in the works right now. And yes. the uh, current book that's about to hit the streets, March 17th, Beasts of 42nd Street, uh, you can order that Cemetery Dance Publications, uh, cemeterydance.com. Uh, I guess we'll put a link to that. And you are one of those people who doesn't have very much of an online presence. All you've got is a Twitter. Yep. And that's it. Yep. You don't have a website. <laughs> I keep meaning to put one together, and every time I try to, every time I sit down to do it, I'm like, yeah, I've got Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we can find you can find Preston on Twitter. We've got the link there in, in our notes, and I will go ahead and put the, the link to the book from Cemetery Dance there as well. Preston, thanks very much for being here, sir. It's always good to have you. We've got to do this again sooner rather than later. I want to, I want to make sure that we get you back very, very soon. I've got another book coming out in October. 
Okay. All right. We will definitely do that. And we'll probably have you back maybe for some panel discussions. We'll talk about some stuff. Sounds great. Okay. All right. That's going to do it for us today, folks. Thanks very much for being here. All of you in the chat, good to see you. Don't forget, we do have a Discord server. Uh, so uh, you can join us for that uh, discussion continuation. Also, we've got all the different social medias where you can find us. We've got uh, the Subscribestar account, various different video platforms where you can find us there. Uh, this program is on weekdays, Monday through Open Line Friday, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 Central. And I mentioned Open Line Friday. We've got another one coming up on Friday, day after tomorrow. So have your thoughts and comments ready, and uh, we will take your calls. And that's going to do it for us today, folks. Thanks very much for being here. I do appreciate all of you being here, whether you're subscribed to the channel or not. It's always good to have you. And uh, leave a comment, send us an email, live from the bunker at sci fi com. We'll be back to do this again tomorrow. Uh, maybe talk about YouTube's new boss. We'll see. All right. Remember, folks, there are four lights. This has been a presentation of sci fi for me.com. Copyright 2023 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to sci fi for me radio. 